Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Welcome to Grace. If you're new here, you need to know two things about us. Number one, we believe that we are sinners, but we believe that Jesus is a greater Savior. And because of Him and what He has done for us, we as Christians have been adopted into God's family. We're no longer orphans. We're, we're God's children and we are now in union with His Son, in union with Christ. And because of that, God's not mad at us anymore. Instead, He's madly in love with us because we are His children. And so we love Him because He's so good to us, because He's so merciful to us. As uh, one of my favorite Puritans, the Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs has famously said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And that's what we'll see as we look at Esther chapter 3 today. If you're visiting with us for the first time today, I should let you know that several weeks ago we started a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of Esther. And if you're not familiar with the story, let me bring you up to speed. Here's what you have missed, or if you go to Grace and you haven't been here for the last three weeks, here's what you missed. The Persian king Ahasuerus, who reigned roughly in the 480s B.C., He threw this six-month-long party for his entire kingdom. Yes, you heard me right. He threw a six-month-long party. And then after that, he decided, what's one more week? And so he had another week-long party. And when he had that week of partying, his wife, the queen, her name was Vashti, she also had a party for a week for her good friends. Well, the king had too many hoppy-poppy IPAs, And he gets real happy. We saw that in chapter 1. The hoppy poppy beer made him happy happy. So King Ahasuerus was feeling pretty good and he called for his wife Vashti to show up. But Vashti declines. She says, I'm not going to leave my party and show up at yours. And here's why. Because Queen Vashti was a very beautiful woman and the king wanted to show her off to all of his drinking buddies. But Vashti would not be gawked at and whistled at by a bunch of old drunk men, so she refused to show up to her husband's party and walk down this catwalk. Well, Ahasuerus is triggered by this, so he kicks Vashti out and he tells her that she's not the queen anymore. And then he makes a law that all women have to obey and respect their husbands. So the law went out went out to his entire kingdom. All women are to obey and respect their husbands. That went over real well, y'all. That's chapter one of Esther. You already get a flavor for what kind of king King Ahasuerus is. So after a while, Ahasuerus wants a new wife, so his advisors tell him to throw a beauty pageant to pick a new queen. This is sort of like the bachelor Persia. So they round up all of the most beautiful virgins throughout the entire empire, the Persian empire, and they have this beauty contest. And here's how the king is going to decide who's going to be his new queen. Each girl would spend a year getting ready to meet the queen, a year of cosmetics and spa treatments and getting their hair done and getting their nails did. And then when their time would come, they would go in to spend the night with the king. And whoever pleased the king the most that night, they would win the contest and become the queen. 
Well, eventually, a young Jewish girl named Esther is taken in to see the king. Now, this is supposed to shock us when we read it. Esther is a Jew. She's an Israelite, and she's not supposed to spend the night with a pagan king and have a one-night stand with him, let alone marry him, because he's a pagan. So Esther keeps her Jewish identity a secret. Esther was told by her cousin Mordecai, who was raising her because her parents died, so he was raising her as his daughter. He said, don't tell anyone that you are a Jew. So Esther keeps quiet about it. She doesn't tell anyone she's a Jew. And she begins winning people over with her good looks. In fact, we saw last week in chapter 2, Esther used her good looks to get what she wanted. And she eventually got the crown after spending the night with the king. She had such a great impact on the king that night that he got up the next morning and gave away many gifts and he even lowered taxes. That's Esther chapter 2 in a nutshell. And that's where we left off. But at the very end of chapter 2, we learn that as Esther is enjoying life as the new queen, her cousin Mordecai uncovers this assassination plot against the king, against her new husband. Mordecai discovers that there are these two thugs, their names were Bigthana and Teresh, these two thugs who wanted to kill the king. So Mordecai goes to Esther and tells her, and she tells the king, and there's an investigation, and then the two thugs are put to death. And so that's where we pick up in Esther chapter 3 today. We pick up where Mordecai, we've just read Mordecai is the hero. He saved the life of the king. And we expect things in chapter thing, chapter 3 to go well for him. We expect social media to be abuzz about what Mordecai has done. We expect the front page of the Persian Times to read, Mordecai uncovers assassination plot, king saved. But that's not what happens in Esther chapter 3 at all. Mordecai hears about a death threat on the king only to wind up with his own death threat. Mordecai saves the king's life, and then he ends up on death row. And not just Mordecai is in danger. Mass genocide awaits his people, the Jewish people, the Israelites. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Death threats and mass genocide on Christmas. Now, I know this may seem a little morbid because it's Christmas, But death threats are a part of the Christmas story. More on that in a moment. But for now, here's our big idea today and what I want to encourage you with. I want to encourage you today to do this. Bow down before the merciful king. Fall on your knees before the merciful king Jesus. What we'll see today is that even though Jesus is king... And we are rebels. He is merciful to sinners like us. Even though we commit treason against him, he's willing to forgive us. Even though we try to assassinate him and take his throne, he is merciful and even kind to rebels like us. He offers amnesty to rebels like us. He came to save us. But God, as Preston Sprinkle says, God doesn't just want to save us. He actually wants to be with us. God doesn't just love us. 
God actually likes us. So God removes his royal robes and steps down from his throne. That's what the incarnation is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus removing his royal robes and stepping down and becoming a human being. Coming down to be with us. It's all about God's mercy. And that's why the word gospel means good news. It's good news that God is merciful to us, that he doesn't give us what we all deserve. And all of that is lurking in the background of Esther chapter 3. So turn to Esther chapter 3 and hear the word of the merciful king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to him, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Okay, so here's what's happening. Mordecai uncovers this assassination plot against King Ahasuerus, and because he discovered this plot, Ahasuerus' life is spared, and the two thugs who tried to kill the king were impaled on these poles. That's what these gallows were. When it mentions in chapter 2 that they were hanged on these gallows, they weren't gallows the way we think of gallows. They were these poles or stakes that would be coming up out of the ground, and you would just throw people on top of them, and that's how they would meet their, their death. Um, and that's what happened to Big Thana and Teresh, these two guys who wanted to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai's intervention and un- uncovering of this assassination plot was recorded in the king's records. It wasn't on the news that night, but it was recorded in the royal records. But as we'll see uh, as the story unfolds, this assassination discovery by Mordecai is quickly forgotten. So when you get to chapter 3... You expect to see Mordecai rewarded and honored for saving the life of the king, but instead a man named Haman is honored. Now, we don't know why Haman was honored and given the number two position in the kingdom, but he was. But we know this as Christians, because we've read the rest of the Bible, we also know that although God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther, he is sovereignly orchestrating every detail and everything that happens in this book. God is working in and through the, the, the events, all of the events in the book of Esther. God is present in Persia even though he is most absent. And so Haman gets a new position and he wants people to show their respects and honor him. This guy Haman thinks he's all that. He thinks he's something and he wants people to show him respect. And the people oblige him. People bow down to him as Haman is paraded through the streets of Susa, but there's one guy who will not bow down, Mordecai. Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. Mordecai likely knew Haman as he most likely worked with him at the king's gate. 
The king's gate was this large building that, that was at the entrance of the king's palace where legal matters and business transactions occurred. So when the text says back in chapter 2 verse 19 that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, it means that Mordecai held some sort of position in the palace administration. So Mordecai had some sort of leadership position at the king's gate, and that's how he found out about the assassination plot, and it's also how he knew who Haman was. But Mordecai knows something else about Haman. Mordecai knows that Haman is an Agagite. Mordecai knows that Haman is related to Agag the Amalekite, which may mean nothing to you, but if you know your Old Testament history, you know the bad blood that exists between these two families. Let me give you a brief summary so that you know why Mordecai hates Haman and why Haman hates Mordecai. Their story is, it's like the Bloods and the Crips. It's like the Hatfields and the McCoys. It's like the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles. Although we Cowboy fans were voting for the Eagles the other day because we wanted them to beat the Giants so we could win first place, etc. So it was like the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles. Their hatred, it was like me and mayonnaise. There's deep hatred here. Deep hatred here between these two people, and here's why. When the nation of Israel came out of slavery in Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them in the wilderness, and they tried to destroy the Israelites. You can read about that in Exodus 17. So God put a curse on the Amalekites and ordered that their memory be blotted out from the face of the earth. That's in Deuteronomy 25 and Numbers 24. Well, later on in Israel's history, when Saul was king over Israel, he was ordered to carry out the destruction of the Amalekites and their king, King Agag. But Saul did not do it. Saul spared King Agag's life. And ever since then, there was bad blood between the Israelites and the Amalekites. And that's why Mordecai hates Haman and why Haman hates Mordecai. Haman is a descendant of King Agag and Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul. And that's why Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. Now, Lest you think that Mordecai is some godly Israelite man who is striving to keep the first and second commandments, and lest you think that's why he won't bow down to Haman, remember the compromise that has come to characterize Mordecai. What we saw last week in chapter 2, Mordecai had just offered up his adopted daughter Esther to this sleazy Drunk, womanizing, pagan king. So Mordecai is hardly the poster child for authentic faith and godly parenting in the post-exilic period. It's because of the bad blood that exists between these two families that Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. It's not because he knows that he should worship the Lord God and serve him only. Mordecai will not bow down because Mordecai cannot stand this guy, Haman. So Mordecai is not honored for saving the king's life, and instead Haman is honored. And this really gets under Mordecai's skin. So he refuses to bow down before Haman. 
Haman is his enemy. In fact, the author of the book of Esther gives us a clue in the pattern and the order in which Haman is presented and mentioned in this book. There's this chiastic structure that highlights the true uh, identity of Haman. He's the enemy of Mordecai and the enemy of the Jews. And you can see that in the way that there's a structure, the way it's laid out. So the author of Esther wants you to know that Haman is the enemy of the Jews. He's an Agagite. He's the number one enemy. And now you know why Mordecai will not bow down. It's not because he wanted to keep the first and second commandments. It's because he can't stand this guy named Haman because their families have been feuding for years. But Haman is so full of himself that he doesn't even notice the one man in the crowd who is not kneeling down, but who's rather standing up. Haman is just soaking up all of the praise as he is paraded through the streets of Susa. He's saying, no, really, y'all shouldn't. Stop it, really. Come on, really. I mean, he's just loving every minute. And this goes on for days, the text says. But Haman's toadies notice that Mordecai is not bowing down, so they begin to question Mordecai. And after many days, Mordecai finally reveals why he will not bow down. He says, it's because I'm a Jew. Now, How do you think Haman is going to respond to being told that not only is there a guy who will not bow down, but that guy, the guy who will not bow down, that guy is none other than Mordecai, who happens to be a Jew and an enemy of your family. Well, verse 5 tells us that Haman was filled with fury. Haman finally sees Mordecai, not bowing down, and he sees red. And the Hebrew of verse 6 reads literally, he scorned in his eyes. Haman scorned in his eyes. But Haman remarkably keeps his anger in check, and he comes up with the plan. I'm going to kill not only Mordecai, I'm going to kill all of the Jews. Killing is his business, and business is good. It isn't enough for Haman to kill Mordecai, to kill one Jew. He wants to kill them all. He wants to kill every single Jew in the Persian Empire. And so how does Haman figure out what day to pick to go about killing the Jews? He just rolls a set of dice. Which day should it do it? Hmm, let's see. Let's just roll some dice. There we go. That's the day. Look at verse 7. In the first month which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. That they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. 
So in order to figure out what day to exterminate all of the Jews in the Persian Empire, Haman casts lots, which is basically the equivalent of like using dice is probably how we would do it today. So he starts by trying to determine the day, which day should I kill all the Jews? And he rolls the dice and it comes up that it should occur uh, almost a year later on the 13th day of the 12th month. So Haman approaches his new boss, King Ahasuerus, and informs the king that there are these people in his kingdom who don't play by the rules. And Haman tells the king, they don't obey his laws, and so they got to go. And so Haman proposes that they be destroyed, and he even offers the king 10,000 talents of silver if he will agree. He's trying to grease him up a little. And so the king agrees, and he puts his royal stamp on it, and then it's a done deal. Every single Jew, men, women, and children, will be executed on the 13th of the 12th month, about a year away from the conversation that Ahasuerus and Haman had. Now look at verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So the king's scribes are summoned, and they dispatch letters all over the Persian Empire, letting everyone know that all the Jews are to be killed. But what's even harder for the Jews is that these letters were dispatched on the day before Passover. The day before the most important day of worship for the Jewish people, and they get this news. The day before they are to celebrate how Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, delivered them out of slavery to Pharaoh and Egypt. And they get this news. This would be like finding out on Christmas Eve. I mean, talk about ruining your Christmas. And so this dark cloud hovers over the Passover as Jews go from planning to celebrate salvation on the Passover to wondering if they will be saved from genocide. And so the decree goes out that all Jews, young and old, women and children are to be annihilated on a certain day about a year away. And so you have this heavy, weighty news, and then you see King Ahasuerus and Haman. And what are they doing? They're having a beer. They're just kicking back and getting hammered. And so Haman requests permission to kill an entire people group. And Ahasuerus basically says this, I don't care who you kill, just hand me another zombie killer beer. But don't overlook what is happening here. On the day before Passover, Jews would select the sacrificial lamb that was to be slaughtered. 
on a day when they should be choosing which lamb would be slain, they get the news that they would be slaughtered. And this is why verse 15 says that the whole city was thrown into confusion. In fact, the word that is used here for confusion is the same word, same Hebrew word that's used in Exodus 14, 3, when it says that Pharaoh would say that the Israelites were bewildered when he trapped them. It's also used in Joel chapter 1, verse 18. This Hebrew word used in Joel 1:18 to describe the moaning and the suffering of cattle who have no pasture to feed in in the middle of a drought. And so the whole city of Susa is moaning and suffering, and they're bewildered at this decree that has gone out from the king. Meanwhile, Ahasuerus and Haman are down in Bulton at the Barrel Works tasting room, drinking an El Dorado beer while all hell breaks loose in Susa. You see what kind of people these are? The king and Haman? Now, Lest you think this is just some story in the Old Testament, please know that there is more going on here. This is not just a death threat against one Jew. This is not just a plan for the mass genocide of an entire people group. This is not just the plan of a prideful, angry man and a sleazy, indifferent pagan king who likes to get drunk and who loves women. There's more to this story, and it involves you. It involves me. What we'll see in a moment is that this story is part of a bigger story. And when we see that, it should cause us to do one thing, to bow down before the merciful king, to fall on our knees before King Jesus, because he's so merciful. When we realize what's really going on here in Esther 3, it should cause us to bow down before King Jesus precisely because he is so merciful and so kind and so loving to sinners like us. When you come to grips with how merciful Jesus is, That he doesn't give you and I what we rightly deserve. It should cause you to bow down in worship and adore him. Let me explain. Haman's attempt to kill all the Jews is none other than the serpent's plan to bruise the heel of Eve's descendant. Remember what we saw last night at our Christmas Eve sermon, how Jesus was the serpent crusher who came to destroy the devil and all of his works. Remember what God said in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve sinned? He basically said that the devil would try to prevent Jesus from coming into this world. And so Haman's plan in attempting to kill the Jews is none other than the devil's attempt to keep Jesus from coming. The devil's plan from the beginning has been to try and stop Jesus from coming, to try to stop Christmas from happening. God promised Adam and Eve that one of their descendants would come and crush the snake's head, the devil's head. And Haman's plan is just the outworking of the devil to try and keep 
that crushing from happening. If the devil can see Haman's plan come to fruition and all the Jews are killed, then that means that Jesus can't come and save sinners and rebels like us. You are a part of what's happening in Persia in the 480s B.C. This is not just a throwaway chapter. You are involved in this story too. This has everything to do with you today. Everything that was happening in Persia in the 480s B.C. has everything to do with you on Christmas in 2016. If the devil can see Haman's plan come to fruition and all Jews are killed, then that means Jesus can't come and save sinners and rebels like us. And this is exactly what King Herod does at Jesus' birth. Just like Haman, Herod was a part of this grand scheme by the devil to keep Jesus from living the perfect life and dying the perfect death for us, to keep him from redeeming his creation. Listen to Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet... And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Just as Haman hated Mordecai, so too the devil 
hates Jesus and he tried everything he could to keep Jesus from coming into this world. He tried everything he could do to stop Christmas. And you too are why Satan wanted to stop Jesus. The devil hates you. The devil doesn't give a rip about you. He wants to destroy you. And he wanted to destroy Jesus so Jesus couldn't come and save you. If you leave here today, know those two things. God loves you and the devil hates you. The devil did not and he does not want you to believe in Jesus. The devil wants you to stay on death row. The devil has made a death threat on your life, an eternal death threat. And so you are a part of this story too, a part of the Christmas story too. Esther 3 is all about you. The question this morning is, how will you respond to Jesus? How will you respond to the babe in the straw? How will you respond to the king? Are you like Ahasuerus this morning? I mean, he was a drunkard and a womanizer, and he didn't care if an entire people group were wiped out. He was just so indifferent to it all. Let me ask you this morning. Are you indifferent to God and his kingdom? Are you indifferent like the scribes in Matthew's story? They heard about Jesus, but they did not go worship They weren't interested. They should have been very interested because these were the Bible scholars of the day. Herod said, where is he supposed to be born? And they said, oh, we'll tell you right there in the Old Testament. Tells it in Bethlehem. And they they weren't astonished by that. They didn't go look for the child to worship him. They weren't interested at all. Maybe that's you today. You're just not interested in Jesus. Or maybe you're threatened by Jesus. We see this with Haman. He was threatened by Mordecai because he was a Jew. God's people. And we see this with Herod in Matthew's story. Herod is afraid. He's troubled. He's threatened by Jesus. He's so threatened by Jesus that he schemes and lies and then commits mass murder just to try to get rid of Jesus. And so where are you today? What, which camp do you fall into? Are you just indifferent to Jesus? Are you threatened by him and his claims on your life so that it leads you to hostility? Are you in one of those groups? The book of Esther is part of a bigger story about an even greater king, a merciful king. Not a king like Herod who got angry and killed little baby boys. Not a king like Ahasuerus who was just passive and was like, I don't care who you kill. I'm not even going to investigate it. You say there's someone that's against me and doesn't obey my laws, wipe them all out, hand me another beer. There's a greater king that came, and he's merciful. This king is the king of the entire universe, and we all live in his kingdom. Whether we like it or not, Jesus, the king, rules over every single one of us. This is his empire that we find ourselves in. We're living in his empire, not ours. And we all should bow down before Jesus the King. But because we are all sinners, we don't. We all like to build up these little kingdoms of self where where we reign as king or queen over our own little kingdom. At our core, we are rebels. We're, We're born rebels. We're born sinners. And we don't like to bow down. We don't like to bend our knees. We want people to bow down to us. We want people to serve us. And that's how God's law exposes us as the sinners that we are. 
But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus did not bow down when he was tempted. Matthew tells us in his gospel in chapter 4 that Jesus said to the devil, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So Jesus quotes the law here. We are all called to worship and serve the Lord God only, but we fail. All of us, we do. That's the bad news. Okay, you got to hear the bad news before you hear the good news. You got to hear the bad news before the good news. You see it as, man, that's good news. So that's the bad news. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus offers amnesty to sinners and rebels like us. He is merciful to sinners. Oh, Jesus is so merciful to sinners like us. So very merciful. He doesn't give us what we all deserve. It's amazing grace. We commit cosmic treason and God grants us mercy. He gives us the righteousness that we need to draw near to him. And if we repent of our sin and we trust in Jesus, we can be forgiven of all of our sins. and be wiped clean. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20. He said, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We have all committed treason against our king, and he should treat us as enemies, but he doesn't. He loves us. He offers amnesty if we repent and believe. We can escape the horrors of everlasting punishment in hell if we trust in Jesus. Will you trust in him today? The Bible says in Romans 5.10, even while we were enemies, Jesus died for us. While we were his enemies, he died for us. And that should cause us to do one thing, to bow down before the merciful king, to fall on our knees. Here's what Christmas is about. Here's what Esther chapter 3 is all about. Tim Keller says, Christmas means that we are so lost that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. That's how lost we are. We are so lost, so lost in sin, so blind, so broken, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. And that's why Jesus came. The incarnation, the birth of Jesus, shows us that Jesus pities us. He's sympathetic. He's merciful. He's like a parent dealing with a sick child. And that's really what sin is. It's a sickness. It's, it's not our identity. At least as Christians, sin is not our ultimate identity. As Christians, our identity is that we are no longer orphans. We have now been adopted into God's family. And he loves us. He's not mad at us anymore. He's madly in love with us. As Christians, our identity is that we are in union with Christ. We're glued to Christ. We're God's adopted children. But we're children. And we have a sickness that remains until we die. It's called indwelling sin. We're God's kids and we're sick. We're sick 
with sin. And so we're messy. We're messy until the day we die. And some of you are having family in town or you're going to family's house and you know what I mean when I say we're messy. Some of you, your family is messy. You got that one uncle that's going to show up and you're just praying and hoping he doesn't show up. That's how messy we are. Or maybe your family's saying that about you. I don't know. <laughs> this is where another one of my Puritans friends helps me out. Richard Sibbs, who I quoted at the beginning of the sermon, discipled this Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, and he's so helpful here. Thomas Goodwin said it this way, your misery can never exceed his mercy. Your misery, however you mess up your life because of sin, is no match for God's mercy. No matter how you mess up your life, you cannot exceed God's mercy. No matter what mess you make of your life because of your sin, you cannot exceed God's mercy. Goodwin said this, So he, Jesus, also lays open his own disposition, his heart, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. And he says, Come to me, you that are weary and heavy laden, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Goodwin continues, Men are apt to have contrary conceits of Christ, contrary thoughts of Christ. But Jesus tells them his disposition there, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, by preventing such hard thoughts of him, to allure them unto him the more. We are apt to think that Jesus, being so holy, is therefore a, of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. Jesus clearly tells us how he is. He is meek and lowly of heart. He's a king, and he's meek and lowly of heart. And he tells us this because we are so prone to have thoughts of him as being hard as nails, especially when we sin. And so Jesus tells us that he's a merciful king in order to allure us to him because he knows that we want to keep our distance from him because of our sin. Jesus knew that we would think that because he is so holy that he would have a sour disposition against us. That's why Jesus tells us that he's merciful and a kind and a gentle king to sinners like us. Jesus, King Jesus, woos us to his throne with his mercy. Understand this, Grace. Your mess does not keep Jesus away. Your sin and your mess does not keep Jesus away from you ever. The incarnation is proof of that. He came down to sinners, messy sinners, broken sinners, rebellious sinners, because he was moved with compassion. In fact, Thomas Goodwin said this, your sins move him to pity more than to anger. Think about that, Grace. For those of us who have repented of our sins and we're trusting in Jesus alone, this is true. Our sins move Jesus, the king of the universe, to pity more than to anger. Our sins move Jesus to compassion more than to anger. Think about that. That's incredible. Your sins, Christian, move the eternal king, King Jesus, to pity more than to anger. Now let me ask you, is that how you view Jesus after you've binged on sin? How do you view Jesus when you blow it? Do you see him moving towards you in pity and mercy and compassion? Or do you picture him full of wrath and anger? Like someone yanks Jesus' arm behind his back and says, Be merciful to them! He's like, oh, okay, I'll be merciful. Is that how you view Jesus? 
that someone's forcing him to be gentle and kind with you? Is that how you view Jesus, Christian, after you've wallowed in sin? If it is, then hear Thomas Goodwin again because he has a word that you need to hear. He said, your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Christ, he takes part with you and is so far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yea, his pity is increased the more towards you even as the heart of a father is to a child that hath some loathsome disease or as one is to a member of his own body that hath the leprosy. He hates not the member, for it is his flesh, but the disease. And that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. What Thomas Goodwin is saying is that just like a parent is moved to compassion when their child is sick, that's how Jesus is towards us because he is our faithful and merciful high priest. Parents, what happens when your children get sick? We don't hate our children when they get sick, do we? No, we pity them. We hate the sickness. We hate the fever. We hate the stomach bug that causes them to throw up on your couch, which happened at our house this week. We hate the cancer, but we don't hate our children. We pity them. We love them. Our hearts break for them. Our heart moves out to them in compassion even as we hate the sickness. And that's precisely how God is with us. He hates our sin. Yes, he hates our sin, indwelling sin or sickness. Make no mistake about it, God hates our sin because he's holy. But oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves sinners like us. How he pities us. How he comes in mercy to sinners like us. Oh, how his compassionate heart moves out to his children when they have binged on sin. Oh, how his merciful heart moves out to us when we wallow in our sin, when we wallow in our sickness. As Thomas Goodwin says, if your child becomes very sick, you do not kick the child out. You weep with him and tend to his needs. Christ responds to our sins with compassion despite his abhorrence of them. That's what the incarnation is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about Jesus coming down to us because we are broken and sick with sin. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is a merciful king. Will you bow down before the merciful king today. Let's pray. Father, we are flabbergasted. I suppose that's the best word, that you would love us. We know our sin and our rebellion. It's ever before us. And yet you're so merciful and so kind. And in your great compassion, Father, You moved out to us when we were running from you, when we resisted you, when we didn't want you. You came down to us in the person of your son in the first advent. And Jesus, the God-man, who was 100% God and 100% man, and those two natures were united together, he lived the perfect life that you expect us to live. And he died the perfect death that we deserve because we're sinners, because we don't live a perfect life. And you raised him from the dead and he's coming again in his second advent. And you did all that because you love us. 
And so we say thank you this morning. Forgive us and thank you. Turn our hearts towards your son that we would bow down in response to his kindness and mercy and goodness. We pray that his kindness would lead us to repentance this morning. We would bow before our Savior and rejoice and sing, Father, like the wise men and like the angels. Would you do that this morning for our joy? And would you do it for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name.